Hey everyone, welcome to the Happy Flosser podcast. My name is Billy Lunt. I am your host, and I am here to talk to you about all things dental hygiene to support you on your journey through the dental hygiene program. Welcome, so glad to have you. Fluoride is an inorganic element that occurs naturally in our earth and it's released from rocks and soil in the water and it's a natural process that occurs from erosion and it ends up in our drinking water. It's naturally occurring in many lakes and underground water sources. It can be also found in many of the things that we eat and drink, things like cheese and carrots and tomatoes. Even McDonald's french fries can have fluoride. The majority of fluoride intake comes from drinking water though, in the communities that have fluoride or fluoridation present. Also toothpaste if it's swallowed, which typically occurs in younger children who haven't learned how to spit yet. Also mouthwashes and fluoride rinses or treatments. You can also find fluoride in beverages and foods that are processed with water that contains fluoride. Patients also get prescription supplements, and those are also considered a source of fluoride. And this is either given in tablet or drop form. So how does it all work? And where is the benefit? In this episode, we're going to actually talk about how fluoride works to strengthen the enamel and reduce the risk of decay. How does fluoride actually work to strengthen the teeth and resist tooth decay? That's quite a conundrum if you don't understand the chemistry behind it or the formation of the enamel. So when you take histology and embryology, you will learn all about the formation of enamel. So for this episode, we're strictly focused on how fluoride works but I have to give you some basics about enamel in order for it to make sense. So the enamel is formed by these little rods called amelioblasts, and they build many, many layers, and they become really, really hard. This is known as hydroxyapatite. These amelioplasts interlink to form the hardest mineral in your body. Enamel is pretty hard. It does have a basic weakness though, and it dissolves in an acidic environment, which is true of many hard things. So while saliva plays a role in helping the enamel remain protected in these really harsh acidic environments, bacteria and food mix together with the saliva and they hang out. Think about the harsh environment of the teeth. Every time you eat something, you expose your mouth to a really acidic environment. Not to mention all the things that are going on with the types of food that you're choosing to eat, but just the natural process of eating can cause a lot of stress, so the enamel has to be really, really strong. Couple that with the introduction of bacteria that's in the biofilm in your mouth, and it's given a nutrient supply of the food that you eat. So the bacteria grow best when they're exposed to these components. So when the bacteria in your mouth eats the nutrients left behind by the food that you eat, it also produces an acid as a side effect. 
and as these bacteria grow, biofilm is formed, which continues to excrete, yep, more acid. So the magic number of pH is 5.5, which is really important for you to know as a dental hygiene student. At that pH, the environment starts the breakdown of the hydroxyapatite, which begins the demineralization process, which can be revised and reversed with the pH retaining to normal or above that 5.5 pH. So think of it as like a tug of war. You've got this neutral tooth in the middle. And as that pH goes below 5.5, the demineralization process occurs. And as the pH goes above 5.5, the remineralization process occurs. And somewhere in the middle of that is a patient who's just going through life, chewing and eating food and brushing their teeth. So it's important to understand how the bacteria grows, how the biofilm develops, and the choices of food that patients eat impact this whole environment. In this balance of demineralization and remineralization, if too much demineralization occurs and your pH is down too far for too long, you can get cavities, right? There's cavity formation. So where does the fluoride come in? The fluoride helps in the remineralization process. It changes the hydroxyapatite to fluoroapatite, which is much stronger and resistant to breakdown in an acidic environment. It's just a little tougher. The fluoroapatite is electronegative and it seems to form a much stronger bond and it's a little more resistant because of that bond to breakdown in an acidic environment. The fluorine atom is a little smaller with a higher electronegativity. And because of this formation of bonds, the electron that accepts the fluorine is a little bit closer to the nucleus, which makes it a little more difficult to get rid of or to expel the fluorine from the appetite when you compare this to the hydroxyl group. So the hydroxyl group is a little bit more vulnerable when it's exposed to an acidic environment when you compare it to the fluoroapatite. I hope that makes sense. So when you get the fluoride uptake into the enamel matrix, it helps with the remineralization process and it actually combats the demineralization process from occurring when we chew and eat our food and we expose our mouth to an acidic environment. So the more routine, regular doses of fluoride to keep that enamel matrix rich in fluoroapatite is going to help reduce your risk of demineralization and therefore reduce your risk of decay. In summary, the fluoroapatite is a form of hydroxyapatite in which the fluoride ions have replaced some of the hydroxyl ions. And with the fluoride present, the crystal is less soluble and therefore more resistant to acids. There are generally two ways in order to receive fluoride. A topical application of fluoride, which is directly applied to the exposed tooth surface that's already erupted into the mouth. And that happens you know, from adolescence throughout your lifetime. And that consists of professionally applied fluoride and self-applied fluoride that you do at home with your toothpaste and gels and, and rinses that you use. 
The other way to receive fluoride is systemically. And this is either from the community drinking water or dietary supplements, food, drink, or by prescription. And the fluoride ends up being digested by the GI tract and it's circulated through the body in the plasma and ends up being integrated into the enamel matrix. What's really cool about topically applied fluoride is that it diffuses into those demineralized areas where the enamel has succumbed to the effects of being exposed to an acidic environment. And it reacts with the calcium and the phosphate to form that fluoroapatite in the remineralization process. When we're looking at the tooth structure itself, the outer enamel has the highest concentrations of fluoride. And the amount of fluoride decreases as you move inward on the tooth. The dentin has the highest concentrations near the pulp and the level of fluoride within the cementum increases with exposure and age. So as recession develops on your patients and the root surfaces of the teeth are exposed, that cementum will actually take in some of the fluoride and increase the level of fluoride contained within that cementum. Fluoride bonds to the outer layer of the enamel, and it decreases the susceptibility of initial and progression of dental caries. Topically applied fluoride will diffuse into those demineralized areas and react with the calcium and the phosphate ions in the remineralization process. When the fluoride is absorbed systemically or digested, it's digested in the GI tract and it's excreted through the kidneys. It clears the bloodstream in about eight or nine hours and half of the fluoride ends up being absorbed within about 30 to 90 minutes. The absorption of fluoride is influenced by binding with the calcium, magnesium, and aluminum ions. So that has an impact on the absorption of the fluoride. It's important to understand different perspectives around the idea of fluoride. You can see that fluoride can come from many sources and it can be difficult to measure just how much fluoride intake is going on for a person. Now what can be challenging as a provider is that there are mixed messages and public perceptions about the correct amount of fluoride needed to be a benefit to oral health without being a problem or risk to other health issues. And these are considerations that you need to keep in mind. They're also conversations that you need to understand how to handle so that you can have the right outcome for your patients. Now there are warning labels on toothpaste that clearly state do not swallow and to limit the amount of toothpaste that are used for patients under the age of six. That warning was actually initiated by the American Dental Association and then was approved in 1991 to be put on toothpaste in order to help reduce the risk of dental fluorosis due to ingesting too much fluoride. Kids can swallow toothpaste, which can give them too much fluoride in their digestive tract and then get absorbed into the enamel matrix during tooth formation. In 1997, the FDA required that the label state that if you accidentally swallow more than required for brushing, to seek help from a professional or to call Poison Control Center as soon as possible. Now, the American Dental Association did not fully support that label, 
But what came from it was the public perception for some that fluoride was a toxin or considered a poison. The American Dental Association stated at that time that a child couldn't absorb enough fluoride from a tube of toothpaste to actually cause a serious problem and pointed to the historically positive safety records on fluoride toothpaste. The EPA has also established regulations around fluoride requiring defluoridation in community water when it exceeds four parts per million. And we will talk more about defluoridation in another episode. The primary motivator behind all of these regulations are due to fluorosis. Now, fluorosis is a condition that happens to the developing teeth as a result of overexposure of fluoride during the tooth development process. And it can appear as small white specks or streaks on the enamel surface and more significant exposure to fluoride would cause brown stain or pitting of rough surfaces of the enamel. Remember I talked about in the last episode the Dean's Index of the severity of fluorosis. The risk of fluorosis can be significantly reduced by closely monitoring the proper use of fluoride products like toothpaste with children and any communities where children are exposed to a water source. It's important to weigh that risk slash benefit with your patient populations and to keep in mind those other sources of fluoride. The actual amount of fluoride that ends up embedded in the matrix of the enamel has some level of variability to it. The amount of fluoride that is stored in the teeth varies due to the amount of fluoride intake the length of time of exposure, and the age of the person. Remember, the stage of tooth development for the individual does play a vital component in how much fluoride is taken into the enamel matrix during tooth development. The tooth stores small amounts of fluoride on the surface of the enamel. Consider that over time, over a patient's lifetime, things like attrition, erosion, and mechanical abrasion can actually change the level of fluoride that is found within the enamel. Now I will cover enamel formation as it relates to tooth development and fluoride in a future episode. Both systemic and topical fluoride use helps to prevent dental decay. We know this. We also know that frequent and routine exposure to fluoride is a recommendation in order to reduce the risk of demineralization. It also contributes to the remineralization process, which can really assist our high caries risk patients. What I'd like you to consider is your own thoughts, feelings, and beliefs around fluoride, because that will create bias when you are trying to educate your patients on the use of fluoride. You want to be mindful in considering how you express fluoride use and your reasons behind it when you're discussing this with patients. One additional fun fact to note, for those of us who are dental data or dental data peeps, fluoridated water was labeled by the CDC to be one of the most, out of the top 10, it made the top 10 significant public health measures 
Yay, it was a success, right? And in 2014, more than 66.3% of the total US population received fluoride in their water, as stated in your Wilkins textbook. That's an amazing number, and we're only making more progress. In future episodes, we will discuss more about the topic of fluoride because there is a lot to know in all the different aspects of patient care. Thanks for listening today. I hope this episode was helpful at introducing you to the mechanism of action for fluoride in the oral cavity. Join me next time where we will be having a discussion about how to communicate with our patients to make them feel loved, heard, and really well cared for. I hope you join me. I would invite you to ask any questions at all that you need answered. Sometimes questions come up when you're listening to this podcast. If you have a question, most likely someone else has the very same question. I'd be happy to answer it and would probably share it in a future podcast.